If you're a regular listener of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, please rate and review us at the Apple Store using iTunes or the podcast app on your iPhone. And so I want to give a special thank you to Prairie Dog and Ghost Hornet, who both just gave us five-star reviews. Prairie Dog writes, David Barkertley and his guests take us on a deep dive into topics related to science fiction and fantasy. The format varies between interviews where David talks to a creator, such as an author or other luminary of the field, and discussion groups where David and a panel of people discuss a topic or subject area. David is certainly one of the best-prepared podcasters in the business, always ready with a fairly complete understanding of the topic or of the work of the interviewee. Geek's Guide is a treasure for the field of science fiction and fantasy, and has an extensive back catalog well worth exploring. So big thanks again to Prairie Dog and Ghost Hornet for their support. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 381 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Christopher Brown. His debut novel, Tropic of Kansas, was a finalist for the Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction Novel of 2018. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as MIT Technology Review, LitHub, Tor.com, and The Baffler. He also co-edited the anthology Three Messages and a Warning, Contemporary Mexican Short Stories of the Fantastic. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel, Rule of Capture, about a defense attorney who represents political prisoners in a future America which is sliding toward fascism. And now here's your interview with Christopher Brown. All right, so we're here with Christopher Brown. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Okay, so how did you first get interested in science fiction? Wow, I first got interested in science fiction, I suppose, as a kid growing up in the 70s as a sort of a child of the space age of, uh, you know, people flying to the moon and stuff like that. And uh, I think I had the idea when I was really little that I would want to grow up and become an astronaut. And uh, and then there was, uh, I grew up in the Midwest and... Uh, Near my home growing up in this kind of funny old neighborhood, uh, uh, there was a, a, a kind of a used bookstore called The Time Machine. <laughs> and it was run by a funny old guy who looked like a, looked like an extra from one of those Three Musketeers movies, but wearing a kind of funny suit. He was like a theater professor at one of the local colleges and, and a Tolkien scholar. He had this little used bookstore, and he would sell, like, tabletop role-playing games and uh, vintage kind of science fiction, hardbacks and paperbacks, all those, like, bantam pulp reissues that they were doing back then, the Doc Savage books, stuff like that, a lot of adventure pulp, and uh, and new comics and old comics. And that's where I sort of started getting my early fixes or my early addictions and... uh, kind of put me on the path to uh, uh, sort of ultimately becoming a science fiction writer as an adult. That's a pretty amazing resource to have that there in your town, a store like that. It was. It was really cool. My friends and I, I had two friends uh, that we kind of discovered it together. It was, uh, there's like the old, this old railroad town that's uh, in Des Moines. And so the old, like downtown of West Des Moines is where this was. And it was, you could either ride your bikes down the hill or you could uh, take the bus if you were an adventurous sort of third or fourth grader. And so we would do both and, uh, and kind of hang out all there all Saturday afternoon and probably 
drive the uh, drive the old guys crazy. But eventually, they started let us playing their D and D games with us, and uh, things would never be the same. That's great. So you had you had friends who were also interested in all that stuff. You weren't a lonely geek. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had friends who we shared an interest, and then, you know, things started to, uh, 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 I think, uh, change come middle school. I got to middle school, and I was still a geek, and I was, like, going to middle school and bringing copies of, like, Starlog magazine mm-hmm. and, like, showing it to people like they would think it was cool, and uh, they all wanted to, you know... Uh, go to the theatrical store across the street from the weird sci-fi bookstore and get like fake beards and go buy six packs of Pabst Blue Ribbon, and uh, so uh, so we found a way to compromise between those two pursuits. Does that work? Getting a fake beard? No, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're, if you're like a 14 year old who looks like a 12 year old wearing like some sort of badly botched, you know, like. Uh, rented beard or 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 you know like crip hair from the the theatrical store. Uh, I do remember the first time we tried that at like a, a gas station. The guy laughed so hard that he gave <laughs> us our, our he gave us our fake IDs back as just kind of credit for uh, effort. Huh. Um, and so then, did you? Um, what sort of stuff were you really into? What sort of authors? Well, I mean, I got really into kind of like in college is when I sort of I, I think I drifted away a little bit in high school. I wasn't really that focused on science fiction, and then I started to get really into J.G. Uh, uh, G. Ballard in college, and uh, and Walker Percy, who's thought of as more of a literary writer, but who wrote a lot of. Um, you know, he wrote a couple of books that were sort of nominally uh, speculative fiction, and um, and that that sort of unique approach to uh, science fiction that those those authors presented uh, was kind of what ultimately uh, turned me on to trying to do something like that myself. And then uh, and then also around that time was when Neuromancer came out. And, uh, and that was kind of like my ticket back here, like my gateway drug back into, uh, uh, sort of new science fiction at the time. And I just remember being really turned on by the, the stylistic innovation of that book and, uh, the way that it, it was sort of riffing on some of the other literary sources that I was excited about at the time, you know, be they like, you know, the Beats, or even like Hunter S. Thompson, and that kind of like gonzo nonfiction voice, or uh, writers, other journalistic writers like Joan Didion, where sort of like the the sound of the words on the page was almost as important as what they were saying. Um, and I got turned on to Burroughs at the time as well, and so um, that kind of uh, 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 mixer of writers uh, had a big uh, kind of key formative influence. And so were you sending stuff out to magazines or? No, I mean, I started, I think like right as I got out of college. I mean, I was, I was a journalist in college and right out of college. I was an editor of my school paper and I worked as a stringer for Newsweek for a while. Uh, but then I was working in government and I was doing a lot of like freelance writing of a very sort of kind of technical sort. I was writing like 
basically uh, nonfiction works for like big NGOs like the World Bank and the UN, sort of the driest possible stuff to kind of make extra money. Um, but I started playing around with with uh, writing fiction, and then yeah, I started sending stories out. You know, I guess kind of like. Uh, a few years out of college, uh, and then uh, went on to law school and uh, uh, to kind of pursue an interest in uh, politics and government. Uh, but I went to law school in Iowa City, where the famous Writers' Workshop is, and and still was a kind of uh, around a lot of uh, writing culture. And then, uh, and then, yeah, and then. All along as I was practicing law, I uh, began, you know, writing and selling short stories and working on longer works uh, that ultimately led me to uh, the, the, the novels I'm writing now. So in all that, were you connected to other science fiction writers or science fiction fandom or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question, David. I mean, initially, no. You know, I really... I mean, well, like I talked about growing up in this town where there was sort of a, you know, a community of people who had these interests... Um, I didn't have any knowledge at all of like fandom or the existence of any of that. And when I first started writing short fiction and trying to figure out how to write a novel, there were no, uh, I, I was not aware of the existence of science fiction workshops or uh, conventions or anything like that. I might have been to a Star Trek convention or two, you know, at some point along the way. Um, uh, and and really, in a way, I wasn't even the, I didn't really think of what I was doing, of this work I was writing as science fiction per se. I knew it had a kind of an element of the fantastic, but I didn't know if I was trying to be Borges or J.G. Ballard or you know a, a literary writer. I wasn't thinking about it so much in those generic terms. So, so but, the, the the magazines that you were sending work to were were not science fiction magazines. They were more like cool literary <laughs> zines, right? Uh, my first sale was to uh, it was a really nice kind of literary small literary magazine, kind of quasi zine, in out of Seattle called Paper Radio, and they published this uh, my first story. Uh, like in the late nineties, and uh, and that was sort of typical of that. And then, uh, but not long after after that, uh, I moved to, to Austin. And in Austin, part of the reason I moved here is I, I uh, uh, at the time, my family and I were looking for uh, a new place to live. We had moved back to the Midwest and were ready for something different. And, and I kind of came here for like a work conference for a weekend. And I was like, and I saw that there was a, a, sci a, a, a science fiction bookstore here that the community could sustain. And I knew that uh, writers like Bruce Sterling lived here and that this had been kind of, a, uh, you know, as much as any place, the birthplace of cyberpunk, the science fiction genre that had really turned me on as a 20-something. And, uh, and so um, I almost partly moved here because I knew there was something like that here. And I met a number of writers here, including Don Webb and ultimately Bruce and Jessica Reisman and others. And that really was my uh, gateway to um, the kind of wider community of science fiction writers uh, uh, and and readers who sort of participate actively in, uh, in fandom. And I got involved with the Turkey City Writers Workshop, which had been going on here since the 70s. Uh, run by a series of writers, and at the time it was run by Bruce Sterling, and um, 
and uh and so i got i got invited uh to participate in that and the way he was doing is he would he would uh, he would do it every two or three months and he would bring in a prominent writer or sometimes editor from out of town uh to participate and everybody would bring a story you would do this really intense day long uh workshop kind of milford style round table and uh i you know that went on actively for sort of four or five years uh before Bruce moved on, and we still have it here, but um, I learned a tremendous amount uh, from doing that and really kind of credit that with sort of coming to understand really the kind of the, the inner workings of the science fiction narrative. So what exactly was that process that takes you from moving to town and not knowing anyone to being in this writing group with Bruce Sterling? You just, you reach out for like uh, writing community. Uh, through a variety of sources, there's a uh, there's a group here in Austin called the Writers League of Texas. It's a nonprofit that puts on uh, classes for people uh, for writers, uh, whether they're you know people trying to take their first stab at writing a work of fiction or nonfiction, or people who are pretty well established and trying to you know kind of develop their skill set in some particular way. And so that's basically what I did. I mean, I was a busy, busy young lawyer working a job and raising a family, but I also had time to, I took a class. Uh, I think I took a novel, a novel in progress class. I had a book I was working on at the time and I took a class with Don Webb, who is a brilliant uh, short story, primarily short story writer uh, based here in Austin and a tremendously gifted teacher. And so I met Don through Don, I met uh, some other writers here, like uh, Jessica Reisman, who I mentioned, and Lawrence Person, who is a, a kind of a, a long-standing uh, science fiction, kind of hard science fiction short story writer here. And then, uh, and then met Bruce and Howard Waldrop, uh, you know, and a wide array of other folks here. I mean, we have a pretty rich uh, community of science fiction and fantasy writers here, and uh, and a pretty active one. And and I guess I've been immersed in that for close to 20 years now and uh it's a wonderful thing to have in your town and and to go from like <laughs> having i don't know 20 plus years of not even knowing that that kind of community existed to uh uh having it be such a rich part of your life is a pretty pretty uh i don't know pretty joyous thing in a way yeah. and very beneficial and so that that novel in progress was that Tropic of Kansas or no? That was I wrote a, a kind of a technology business novel, like an early thriller, and it was pretty good. But it was uh, very topical, and uh, uh, I think uh, uh, I don't think I really uh, fully finished it. Uh, and uh, and I had one other sort of trunk novel I worked on before some of life's interruptions, uh, and then. Uh, and then uh, Tropic of Kansas, uh, which uh, I started working on, you know, probably seven years ago, and came out, uh, of course, uh, two years ago. So, how did that happen? That you started working on on that particular novel? Tropic of Kansas was, uh, you know, initially I I've always written a pretty uh, politically engaged science fiction. I'm very interested. You know, I have this background in politics and government as well, and I worked on Capitol Hill for a long time as a staff lawyer on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I was like one of those C-SPAN guys you'd see, but I was like sitting back when I was supposed to be taking notes, like, you know, jotting down, you know, working on my stories. Um, and uh, uh, and so I had, I had been working a lot, I had written a lot of uh, 
yeah, kind of near future or even kind of altered present uh, 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 science fiction stories with the heavy political component. And so Tropic of Kansas initially uh, started out to be something like that, and it was basically like the idea of uh, uh, imagining, at the time I was starting to work on it, uh, it was when you know, the Arab Spring was happening and Occupy was happening. There was like an Occupy uh, staging uh, base like right across in an old neon plant right across the street from where we live in a kind of industrial neighborhood of East Austin. And I just sort of got to wondering, you know, like imagining, you know, what would happen if you had like an American spring, if these revolutions we see going on in the side of the world were happening right here, if, uh, you know, Occupy with AK-47s, if you will. So that was kind of the basic counterfactual premise. Uh, and I had also, I had been playing around, uh, I, had, I had written a story for an anthology that was edited by Joe Lansdale, our great uh, kind of East Texas master of uh, Texas weird and sort of sort of Bayou Noir, uh, and another writer named Scott Cup. They did an anthology uh, for the uh, the centennial of Robert E. Howard, another Texas writer, uh, for his uh, the centennial of his birth. And so I, I had written a story for that that sort of played on those like Robert E. Howard adventure pulp uh, archetypes. And trying to repurpose them towards more emancipatory ends, if you will, with a little bit more political bite and maybe a little bit more, like, uh, I don't know, character-driven literary ambition, if you will. Um, and so so I tried to, I wanted to repurpose that kind of pulp material and write something that, yeah, riffed on those, uh, those sorts of adventure fiction precedents. It evolved into something kind of uh, uh, much more than that in a way, um, and uh, you know maybe maybe trying to be a little bit more Cormac McCarthy than uh, Robert E. Howard, as it were, and and it ended up uh, taking on a much more green sort of cli-fi kind of thematic uh, uh, emphasis than I really expected when I set out. Uh, because, uh, sort of as I was writing at the characters, and I'm sort of trying to write this sort of character driven science fiction, the characters came to realize that the, these like social and economic and political injustices they were fighting in their society were really ultimately rooted in the damaged relationship that that society had with the land on, on, on which the people lived. And, uh, which, of course, is just, also, my <laughs> my bringing bringing to bear my own observations of what was going on in the world around me and my own interest, uh, sort of independently uh, from my writing in urban ecology and kind of urban uh, 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 environmental activism, and uh, and so that ended up uh, turning it into a kind of green revolutionary story. That's a trajectory that's carrying through. Uh, the, the, the novel that came out, uh, just earlier this fall, real capture and the one I'm working on now. So what was the process like of getting that first novel published? Was it hard? Was it? It's really funny. Yeah. Cause so David, I, uh, I, I finished that and, uh, I don't know. I'm a really good self-critic in some respects, I, I, I think. And so I was sure. I was like, oh, this is so implausible because among the other premises of Tropic of Kansas were that, uh, there's a charismatic CEO who has become a fascist president. And when I finished that and like 
November of 2014. I remember it was like, because I remember I finished it right before going on like Thanksgiving break. Um, I finished it and I kind of let it sit and then I picked it back up and I got ready to send it out. And then I was just like kind of sat on it for a while because I was like, oh, nobody's ever going to believe that. <laughs> That's so implausible. Really, I was sort of... Um, uh, so I kind of sat on it for a while and then I started trying to get friends to help me. Uh, I thought maybe, you know, the best way to get a, get an agent would be through, uh, referrals from friends. And I tried that a little bit with some success. And, um, basically I had one friend who was an editor at, uh, Tor and he said, well, send it to me and I'll help you find an agent. So I sent it to him and he was kind of sitting on it. And I was just like, well, now the news is like catching up with me and I've gone from thinking, this book is too implausible to saying this book is, uh, you know, uh, the headlines are catching up with it and I need to get it out there. So I just did it the old fashioned way and did some research looking for kind of young and hungry agents, uh, who were looking for, you know, quote unquote upmarket science fiction or, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and started cold querying. And upmarket science fiction meaning sort of more literary. Yeah, I guess that's their term. I mean, it was a term I saw. It was like an agent's term, and it meant like, yeah, science fiction that uh, people who are not necessarily uh, entirely immersed in the genre would find uh, readable, I guess. Yeah, or maybe it means science fiction with a certain literary ambition. Um, uh, but I don't know. I think most science fiction has uh, its own literary ambitions. Um, I think it, it was, this is a book, it's set in basically a, you know, a slightly altered present, uh, and, uh, and style does matter in the book. The kind of the voice of the book matters a lot. And, uh, and so that seemed a, a good fit. And, and I had a lot of luck with just that kind of cold querying and, and the editor who had said he was going to, um, uh, hook me up with an agent ultimately was the first one who bought it. Uh, uh, and then six days after he bought it, he died, and <laughs> we had to uh, uh, go, and uh, we ended up back with one of the other publishers that had uh, bid on the book. So, uh, and to my great fortune, the book ended up uh, at Harper Voyager uh, uh, with David Pomerico and his team, uh, where uh, I found a, a, a really uh, uh, a really good home for uh, the kind of work I'm t- trying to do, and part of what's a really interesting uh, and diverse list of writers uh, that I'm happy to be part of, including some good friends, some, and even, including even uh, uh, a couple of folks from Austin, Nikki Drayden and C. Robert Cargill. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the book did really well. I mean, I, I remember hearing about it when it came out, which is, you know, not necessarily automatic for a first novel like that. I mean, did, did you have the perception like, oh, this is going really well, this book is, is really being well-received? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so hard to tell, uh, but uh, I certainly was very fortunate to get some pretty good uh, review coverage when it came out, and uh, I think I, I did have the, you know, good fortune of uh, of kind of uh, hitting the zeitgeist pretty well uh, in terms of having um, tapped into some sort of maybe not unevenly distributed futures, more like unevenly distributed presence. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, and I got, you know, pretty, a pretty, pretty good reader response from it. And, and I put a lot of energy into trying to get the word out. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I feel very fortunate that it seems to have found, uh, a readership, uh, and, uh, 
Yeah. And to, um, yeah, have some people connect with what I was trying to do. When you say that you put a lot of energy into getting the word out, what kind of stuff did you do? Uh, I find that, um, you know, one of the most enjoyable things for me to do in terms of promoting uh, a new work of fiction is to write a lot of related nonfiction. Uh, you know, science fiction, part of the reason I'm so attracted to it is it's the, you know, self-proclaimed literature of ideas. Uh, it's a, a form of uh, storytelling that's not afraid to uh, pack some big ideas into the stories and to turn those ideas and to talk about those ideas through story. Uh, but nonfiction can also be a fun way to talk about some of those ideas. So like with Tropic of Kansas, I tapped into a lot of the different uh, things I was playing with there, including some of the kind of real-world experiences I had had, like, you know, traveling through the war zones of Central America in the 80s when I was really too young to even be doing that kind of activity and, and how I kind of imported that over to uh, into, you know, my my made-up third world in America and stuff like that. And uh, and so I ended up doing dissimilar things with the new book, Rule of Capture, writing about some of the things about, you know, which is more of a, a lawyer story and so kind of riffing on some of the things around uh, research I did into uh, lawyer stories and uh, law and lawyers and science fiction and things like that. Well, yeah, so let's talk about Rule of Capture. So um, just talk a little bit about the world's building that you did. We're, we're in the United States, and uh, the United States has lost a war to China, and things are all kind of crumbling. Yeah, I mean, Rule of Capture is uh, it's nominally based in sort of the same world as Tropic of Kansas, but really a very different uh, kind of voice and story and set essentially earlier in time and, and, and uh quite deliberately works as an independent uh, story. And and so the the world of Rule of Capture, it's in America, is kind of going through its own, like, Weimar Republic moment, if you will. Um, it's in America that uh, is ravaged by climate change. The, uh, the Midwest is sort of wrecked by drought and just kind of generalized ecological and economic exhaustion. There's sort of a lot of internal refugees, kind of people trying to leave the Midwest to find uh, uh, more hospitable climes. And the U.S. has lost a war uh, with China. Uh, not a super, uh, I mean, a, a, not, a, not a long, drawn-out war, a pretty quick conflict that's mostly been uh, orbital, but um, uh, one that has resulted in the humiliation of a country that previously was basically a, a, you know, a, a kind of dominant imperial power and is sort of subjected to you know, treaty accords and austerity programs and things like that. The kind of circumstance that uh, both opens up the window of the politically possible, uh, but also uh, provides a fertile ground for the uh, ferment of kind of ultranationalism. And so Oh, that's kind of the root of the, the the divisive political conflict going on. There are people who kind of want to grab the country back. And so, uh, you know, the idea is that in many respects it sort of feels like, say, you know, Germany in the, in the late 20s or early 30s did during the Weimar years or kind of like Chile and Argentina were uh, right before the uh, outbreaks of their respective dirty wars, uh, something that I have some experience with through uh, family. And um, uh, 
And, uh, and so into this world, we, uh, introduce a series of characters who are kind of caught up in some of the struggles, uh, uh, that that situation has created. Right. I think it's so interesting what you're doing here. Once I got into the book and started realizing it is that we're so used to seeing dystopian fiction as, you know, basically the, the dystopia is, has been realized and nobody has any rights anymore and it's completely totalitarian. But this is, sort of it's in process and democracy and rights are slipping away, but they're still there. And so you have your main character is this criminal defense attorney defending more sort of political prisoners. And so it's not hopeless at this point. He can still reach for these levers of power and try to wield them while they still are effective. Yeah, I mean, it's a world, yeah, it's exactly, David. It's, it's not sort of absolute dystopia. It's kind of incipient dystopia, maybe. Um, and it's trying to grapple with, you know, the ways in which, uh, you know, like in my own lifetime, I've witnessed, you know, as a lawyer, as somebody working in politics and just as a citizen, seeing how, uh, my own belief and and the the sort of norms I've been raised with regarding the rule of law can be um, very rapidly eroded, often through the capitulation of lawyers, (laughs) the lawyers we rely on to kind of hold the line. Uh, You know, uh, I mean, this rule of capture is uh, informed by the experience of seeing, uh, you know, reading the memos that were written by lawyers to sort of explain away the legal prohibitions on torture um, and uh, and a lot of other things uh, like that, uh, not just in the, in the kind of, you know, extremes of national security law, but also in kind of everyday business law and technology and things like that, and, and in people's public conduct, which we all uh, witness in our daily news feed. And, uh, and so trying to, yeah, trying to, uh, look at a world in which, you know, there aren't really, I mean, actual evil is sort of emerging in the society, but, uh, mostly through the bad judgment of sometimes well-intentioned people. Uh, or certainly people who by and large are motivated by what they, by what they think or, you know, uh, higher values and, uh, and just taking a realistic look at, you know, the ways in which, uh, in our society often, uh, uh, people who are kind of trapped by the criminal justice system are, are guilty of what they're charged with, but the things that they're charged with, the crimes they're charged with committing are things that in the grand schemes of things aren't really that criminal, uh, and that there are a lot of, you know, a lot of inequities built into the system, and that the that the uh, the dystopia is already there uh, depending on the angle from which you look at it. Well, I mean, just to do this, to combine a legal thriller with this sort of proto-dystopian world seems like such a great idea, just as an elevator pitch, but I, I don't remember ever seeing a, another book like this. Did you just come up with this idea and instantly think, oh, this is great. I've really got something here. Or did the kind of unfold? I mean, I came up with it originally at Dave. Well, David, while I was working on uh, tropic of Kansas and I was like, I had tropic of Kansas. As I was saying, it's kind of an adventure novel. It's like a road novel. And it's these, you know, there's kind of it's sort of centered around these, 
people on the run across this uh, the uh, kind of wasted out Midwest of the title. And um, I had uh, I had a scene where one of the characters that was in jail had gotten locked up in jail uh, by the dystopian authorities, and his buddy wanted to get him out. And I'd already sort of exhausted the readers, you know, the, the number of plausible escapes that you can have in, in one <laughs> book. And uh, I was sort of in the middle of the book and the part where you're, you know, I was kind of working through this and I went like went to go on a coffee break. And I was like standing there getting in my car with my coffee by the side of the highway. And I look up and there's this billboard, uh, you know, here in Texas where lawyer ads flourish like prickly pear. And uh, by the side of the road, the, the ad is for, uh, it's a very Austin sort of uh, uh, lawyer marketing. It's the lawyer who rocks. <laughs> so, like, you know, if you're the sort of person who wants your lawyer to also be in a band. Um, and I was, like, looking at that guy, and he's got, like, a coat and tie and a biker jacket. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. And, like, who are the lawyers in dystopia, you know? How would lawyers adapt to, uh, you know, a kind of uh, degeneration of the rule of law? What would lawyers, criminal lawyers do if, you know, habeas corpus were suspended? You know, the basic right not to be unlawfully detained, which uh, is a power uh, that the federal government has right there in the Constitution in times of, like, insurrection or rebellion uh, or other emergency. So... I created this character for that book. He didn't end up surviving the uh, ultimate revisions, but he's he's there. He gets a phone call and uh, he helps get a character out. And I love that idea, though. That I was really interested in this idea, and I'm interested in like the tradition of like political lawyers and kind of radical lawyers, like William Kunstler, you know, the guy who was famous for defending the Chicago Seven, and there's this fascinating French lawyer named Jacques Verger, who was like a, 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 a Algerian background, and he had like represented the, you know, supposed terrorists during the, the Algiers War, and then went on to defend, uh, you know, alleged terrorists and war criminals. And so I wanted to kind of play with that idea in a dystopian context. And so, yeah, I, I pitched my editor to that idea. You know, we were like having lunch one day at, a, at Worldcon and kind of talking about what's next after Traffic of Kansas. And I said, yeah, and I have this idea. It's kind of like Better Call Saul meets 1984. Ha ha. And, he's, and you could just see it on his face. And he liked it enough he wanted to. So, um, and it's a fun thing for me because, uh, uh, as you suggest, there really isn't anything out there like that. I mean, there's like, there's a lot of law in science fiction from Asimov's laws of robotics to the prime directive, uh, the like, the laws that the, the animal human hybrids have to follow in the island of Dr. Moreau. You know, there's a lot of law, but very few lawyers. Um, and, uh, I have, you know, my theories on why that is, among other things, because I think, you know, to, Imagine the lawyers of the future. You need to imagine what a what justice looks like in the future. Really, what the society. You know, you have to uh, imagine uh, uh, something very radically different from what we have now. Um, but anyway, it's uh, yeah, it's I think uh, really uh, it's kind of fresh territory to mine. Um, it's also tricky territory because I had never really been that conversant in the material of lawyer stories and had to kind of do a deep dive on that. Uh, and they follow 
very different rules from kind of normal fiction writing. And, um, and so kind of figuring out how to, how to do this kind of mashup and make it all, uh, sync up, right, uh, was a very interesting, uh, challenging and ultimately, uh, rewarding exercise. So did you ever send an email to the lawyer who rocks thanking him for inspiring your book? I have not. I've gotten the message to him through friends. I have some friends who like have cases with him. I should probably just invite the guy to lunch sometime. I just learned that he used to party like at the house three doors down from me with some prior owners of one of the houses on my street. So, so we're kind of one degree removed. Um, and uh, uh, and he's not the only lawyer who inspired it, but there are. Uh, uh, but yeah, he was. Uh, he 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 made an imprint for sure. So your your mutual friends, these are other lawyers or defendants? Other lawyers, yeah. I mean, I'm still a practicing lawyer, and um, and uh, uh, and so I have a lot of friends who do, you know, and that guy's a trial lawyer. So a lot of friends who are trial lawyers, and you know, and it's uh, a uh, a finite community of people who uh, practice in the county courts here, and uh, and so uh, yeah. I have a, like I have a friend who just read my book, read Will of Capture, and she's and she's like, oh, I have a case with that guy. I'm so funny, so because <laughs> she had heard me tell that story at my uh, book launch here at, at Book People here in Austin. Yeah. So when your agent wanted two books, were you just like super excited, or were there any um, challenges or uh, misgivings or anything? Well, yeah. I mean, it was my editor who was interested in two books, uh, and. Uh, uh, I mean, I was, I was excited. I mean, I'm, I'm much, you know, I mean, the, uh, you know, trying to make a real impact as a novelist, you know, it's, it's very important to try to, um, kind of meet the market, uh, with, uh, uh, a reasonable amount of material. And so the idea of getting, uh, to being able to, one, just to be able to write novels on spec, on contract, to have, Make a pitch and then, you know, know that you have a home for the book, assuming you don't, to, don't totally blow it at the execution, <laughs> right? Um, that's tremendously rewarding and it's a great way to build a relationship with your editor and publisher. Um, and, uh, and it's a great way to keep on schedule, you know, because, uh, there's, uh, no better deadline than, you know, one that's in a contract with a giant, uh, international corporation with, you know, an army of lawyers uh, ready to come breathing down your neck if you miss your, if you fail to meet your commitments. And uh, not that it's like that, but I mean, just having a, you know, having that kind of hard obligation is very helpful. Um, it's a little scary to crank out two books in basically two years. Um, I mean, I took, you know, almost three years really, you know, to write Tropic of Kansas. And it went through, I did like some very deep kind of comprehensive rewrites, a couple of them. And, uh, almost wrote like, you know, two and a half books to get the one as it were. And, um, so it's a very different experience, but when you're trying to write, you know, on the one hand, I'm trying to write character driven, uh, uh, works of speculative fiction, rich with world building. But I also want to write like propulsive and entertaining books. And so, um, uh, having those kinds of deadlines, especially when the protagonist is a deadline driven lawyer, 
that's something that ultimately, while it's terrifying, you can use it to charge the material in a way that I think works. I heard you say that the book after Rule of Capture is going to be more of a utopian approach? or Yeah, the book I'm working on now, the working title is Failed State, and it's a, uh, it's a follow-on. It's basically with the same character from Rule of Capture, but taking place after the events of uh, Tropic of Kansas, after there's been an uprising in the United States and the kind of the central the federal government is kind of in shambles and uh, nothing's really working. And, uh, uh, and so, um, whereas in Rule of Capture, the protagonist is basically this burnt-out criminal defense lawyer who is um, representing people in a kind of domestic Guantanamo court uh, people who are like basically like politically rowdy uh, young people who are getting kind of hauled in front of a secret tribunal to just shut them down um, in an America drifting into authoritarianism. In the new book, uh, our uh, uh, the lawyer is defending people who are being hauled in front of post-revolutionary justice tribunals, kind of like uh, truth and reconciliation tribunals with a heavy sort of environmental component or ecological component. Um, and there's a lot of that. There's, I mean, there's a lot of talk of that, at least in certain circles in science fiction, about you know, using speculative fiction to give us the truth and reconciliation commissions we never seem to get in real life. Um, but so, yeah, playing with that kind of material and playing with... Uh, the idea of justice and of just trying to write. I mean, all three of these books, they're all, I mean, Tropic of Kansas and Rule of Capture, they're very dark. They go to very dark places, but they're doing it for positive purposes to try to, you know, partly to use the, the that speculative counterfactual as a vehicle to kind of maybe dial up the... uh uh, focus on some of the darker aspects of the world around us in order to try to find uh, paths to the better future that could lie on the other side, trying to find my way to, you know, a more hopeful setting. Um, and uh, uh, But, you know, writing utopias has its own challenges because the utopia, it's kind of like the old Talking Heads song, Heaven, you know, and heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, if you create a society without conflict, <laughs> you know, it's more like landscape writing or something, uh, or nature writing, uh, which isn't a bad thing, but it's not a thriller. Uh, and so, uh, but I figure, you know, all you have to do to uh, make Utopia have, have a little conflict in Utopia is drop a lawyer into it. <laughs> I mean, when you talk about the future of justice, one idea I've seen in some science fiction novels is that judges and juries should just be replaced by super intelligent AIs who should make all the decisions. Is that something that you've thought about at all? Yeah, I mean, like in Rule of Capture, part of the backstory, it's sort of in the margins, but the idea is that uh, there's this very prosperous China that's basically like an AI-based um, uh, uh, government, like like people, basically, the, like the, the the Chinese have figured out how to operate a successful, centrally planned socialist economy with a really sophisticated AI that's kind of you know really running the show. Um, and uh, and there's a similar idea. These uh, two very interesting writers, Ingrid Burrington 
and Brendan Byrne had a really cool project they did earlier this year, science fiction, speculative fiction project that was sponsored by Mozilla called The Training Commission. That's very similar in a way to some of the stuff I'm doing. It takes it's, but it's like delivered in this very innovative narrative form in like the form of a, a series of emails from the future. But that's said in an American, which there's been a kind of a second civil war and, uh, people like do gooding NGOs and nonprofit types have kind of decided to come up with like an AI based system to ensure justice. Uh, but it ends up with all of these, uh, disappointing results in the way that our own, you know, utopian aspirations for the internet often produce very disappointing kind of uh, surveillance capitalist results. Um, but in my own work, um, I don't know, I've become less and less interested in uh, kind of the technological futures. I mean, I think so many smart writers are exploring those things and uh, uh and I'm like in these books, I'm 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 a lot of what I'm doing is mining the past to kind of imagine my future. Uh, Rule of capture kind of like taps into some of the like deep roots of property law and land law and kind of looking at how our uh, you know, one most land ownership is ultimately rooted in some form of theft because it's ultimately based on conquest. So, um, so I'm kind of going in that counterintuitive direction. I think um, a lot of science fiction tends to be sort of ahistorical, and uh, and for me, I find really rich material in trying to take some of that stuff and then extrapolate forward from the from the deep past. A historical in the sense of just being disconnected from real history. Yeah, just being so excited about the future, right? Which is not a bad thing. It's, I don't mean it as like some sort of objective criticism. Um, uh, but I just think, yeah, I mean, um, it's often, yeah, future focused science fiction is often, uh, pretty, pretty completely unmoored from real history, as it were. Or just kind of so completely focused on uh, the technophilia of uh, the world building, or the kind of the forward-looking world building that um, it—I uh, don't know. I don't know. I just think I think it, that there's an opportunity there, especially if you want to write something that's got kind of that's imbued with a, a sense of realism uh, to uh, kind of draw from real material. I mean, like with Rule of Capture, right? I wanted to write this sort of crazy dystopia of, like, an America under martial law with, like, secret courts and, uh, you know, people being rounded up without due process. And all I had to do was, like, go to the law library and research, uh, you know, precedents in our own history in which those kinds of things had happened. Like, there's, like, a whole shelf of books in the back of the uh, University of Texas Law Library on how to, on the, like, the practical administration of martial law and topics like that from a period in our history when it was pretty common for, like, governors to use martial law to suppress labor actions and stuff like that. Um, or even, you know, just looking back at some of the things that have happened in this country since 9-11. In Rule of Capture, there we hear a little bit about the the better 
um, regime that preceded the totalitarian leaning regime. And yeah. the main character thinks uh, it was a different town back then, free and still full of possibility, locus of a rare historical moment when politics was infused with the same imagination as the arts and the so-called politicians were practicing a utopian experiment in applied science fiction. Yeah. I was just curious if you could say more about that. Do you see a role of, for science fiction in, in government or imagination and things like that? Is that what you would uh, promote yourself? Totally. That's a great question, David. Um, and thanks for bringing that up. I mean, yeah, I think um, that the science fictional imagination, or maybe we could call it the utopian imagination, plays a really important role in political theory and as we were sort of talking about at the outset, my background, it's kind of, I come to science fiction from a background in politics and political theory and um, kind of, you know, thinking about what would a better society look like. I mean, like Tropic of Kansas is sort of asking the question like, uh, did history end at 1789? Maybe we should, you know, is this existing constitutional regime, surely there's like, that's not the end of history, right? There's some place to evolve beyond that. And, um, and if you look at, you know, in my opinion, if you look at, um, like Western, at least political thought going back to the Enlightenment, there's this constant conversation between kind of two extremes. And on the one hand, it's sort of pragmatic conservatism that sort of, sort of, you know, the world is the way it is because that's how it is, sort of, that's how it's naturally evolved. And people who look and say, well, no, there are ways we can redesign society to make it better, to make people happier, to achieve greater social welfare, and to eliminate conflict, and to achieve greater degrees of equality. And, you know, some of those theories are pretty wacky, like this, you know, French uh, uh, theorist Fourier, who had, uh, on the one hand, he had this design for these little communities that were even implemented in, uh, in the 19th century U.S. and places like Ohio, but he also, you know, imagined a world in which there were, like, seas made of lemonade and, like, giant whales flying in the sky. But, uh, you know, more practically, you have, you know, things like, uh, uh, you know, the kind of communist and socialist theories of Marx and the like that kind of were such a heavy weight uh, in the discourse, you know, all through the past 200 years. And then, like, uh, with the, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, that kind of utopian thinking, I think, kind of disappeared from our political discourse. And you just now have kind of like, uh, you know, degrees of pragmatic thought uh, guiding our ideas, but no, like, aspirations for that kind of uh, happier world that could lie on the other side. And, you know, utopia... Is it not a real place, but it's one you can kind of imagine from here. And, uh, and I think science fiction plays a really important, can, if it wishes, play a really important role in trying to imagine those more hopeful futures and sort of reigniting that important project of, uh, yeah, trying to imagine how we can, uh, get to a better world, especially in a, like in an environment now where I think, like, especially on the, with the, 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 the sort of the, looming sense of doom that surrounds the way people talk about the climate. Uh, uh, I think that science fiction can do a really useful thing in terms of imagining futures in which, uh, you know, we've at least partly solved those sorts of problems and managed to find a way to uh, live in balance with nature in a way that's healthy and that still affords a uh, a reasonably enjoyable life. 
There was sort of this thread in the book that seemed to suggest that we should not be extending our current system of private real estate out into space to the moon and Mars. Do you have some other system in mind instead? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, at that, uh, uh, you know, there's a, uh, there's a whole other interesting body of law that really exists. It's like so-called space law that explores some of these issues like, uh, you know, who owns the moon? And uh, can you turn the moon into your private property? And in the world of real capture, the idea is that people are taking our private property regimes from here into space. And uh, in the real world, I mean, the idea is under the, you know, treaties that were established during the space race in the 60s that the uh, things beyond Earth's orbit are there for, quote-unquote, for all mankind or for all humankind, uh, that it's the commons. And uh, I think, I mean, to me, yeah, I, I don't know that I have uh, the absolute system for figuring out how that should be done, but I think there's an emerging system already happening, uh, and that um, uh, getting back to that idea of there being... Um, the commons of kind of commonly shared property is kind of the core property premise. Uh, and, uh, you know, specific exclusive private rights being the exception. Um, I mean, I think we see how much conflict and inequality arises out of the property regimes we have in place now here on this planet. And, uh, I guess, uh, as I look at things like, you know, some of the recent, like in, I don't know, 2015, 16, the U.S. adopted new laws to try to, like, start exporting private property laws into space. And the nation of Luxembourg is trying to become, like, the the Delaware of space, where it's, like, the place you go that has the most favorable corporate laws for, like, uh, commercializing space. And, well, on the one hand, I suppose the profit motive may be an effective way to get people to throw private money at um, space exploration. Uh, which seems to be working to some extent. I'm pretty skeptical about the idea of, like, uh, that, say, you know, private ownership of Mars would be a good thing. I don't really, I don't really see that. And, uh, I'm more interested in sort of seeing something like what, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson envisions in his Mars trilogy, where people come up with a, which has a kind of legal fiction component to it. It's, you know, like people negotiate a new constitution. Uh, for the planet Mars, which includes, uh, rights of the ecosystem itself. And, uh, I think if you, you know, if you have a, there's a place for private property rights, but it, I, I don't think that it's the, like, the, the exclusive basis of, uh, uh, not a healthy exclusive basis for trying to, um, develop a balanced relationship with, uh, the environment here or in space. Yeah. All right. So we're running out of time. I did want to, you know, we were talking off air that I, I just moved to Austin and I wanted to ask, I guess, a little bit more. Is there anything else that, um, you know, science fiction fans who come to Austin should know about the, the local writing scene here? Yeah, well, I mean, Austin is home to just a wide array of really great science fiction writers. I talked about uh, Don Webb and Howard Waldrop and Nikki Drade, and there's also Martha Wells uh, is you know based in College Station near here. Uh, 
Stina liked uh, Marshall Ryan, Mariska, Robert Jackson Bennett, Eugene Fisher, Amanda Downham. Uh, there's Fernando Flores, who wrote this great uh, kind of FSG dystopia this year, Tears of the Truffle Pig. And so um, there's a great community here, and we have uh, every um, every year, usually in August, we have a really tremendous uh, literary science fiction convention called Armadillo Con that's been going on for 40-plus years. And, uh, uh, and uh, we've taken the Turkey City Writers Workshop and made it into a, a nonprofit that's now uh, with the group of us uh, uh, as its kind of board and instructors, uh, we're trying to provide a really great uh, annual uh, workshop for kind of emerging writers of science fiction and fantasy, uh, and one that really works hard to provide a home for diverse voices. We have uh, sponsored seats uh, uh, for writers from underrepresented groups that includes like free attendance at the uh, at the workshop and at the convention and um and uh so we're really keen to have more people uh uh uh, come down here and get to know the community through that i mean you were talking about when you were younger that there was the science fiction bookstore that you went to is there anything like that in austin these days i mean we still have a great community of uh independent bookstores that uh, don't there's not an exclusively science fiction bookstore uh, but we have uh, Book People, which is just a tremendous, uh, long-standing independent bookstore that's a great home for uh, the fantastic literary genres. We have a, uh, a store called Malvern Books that specializes in, uh, you know, kind of small press literary fiction, including a lot of uh, uh, science fiction and fantasy presses, as well as poetry and literature and translation. And uh, they put on all kinds of events and are, uh, again, a wonderful home for writers of the genre. There's a shop called Bookwoman that's focused on uh, feminist literature, fiction and nonfiction, and a bunch of other uh, stores. And even the big chains that are here are, you know, uh, do put on lots of signings uh, for uh, both established and, uh, you know, more indie sorts of writers. And so, uh, so we're very fortunate in that regard. And there are a lot of other kind of smaller workshops uh, here. We have Turkey City, which continues on as a workshop for uh, kind of an invitation-based workshop for working professional writers. Slug Tribe, which is kind of uh, kind of in between and meets like monthly. And uh, it's, a, it's a great community uh, for people who are trying to uh, hone their craft as uh, writers of fantastic fiction. Right now, I was telling you, I just moved to Austin a couple of weeks ago, so I'm definitely looking forward. I haven't had a chance really to check out any of that stuff, but I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Well, we're really excited to have you here, so <laughs> and it's going to be fun. Yeah, I appreciate that. You mentioned earlier that uh, Robert E. Howard was from Texas. I know he was from a place called Cross Plains, Texas. So I was just yeah. curious if you've ever been there, or is it? Uh, I've been up there, you know, and every summer they have these, uh, like, Robert E. Howard days. I've never been to that. There's a uh, a writer named Mark Finn, uh, who now lives out of uh, up near Wichita Falls, uh, close to um, Larry McMurtry's town in Archer City, but um, uh, he's very active in that scene. But it's um, uh, Cross Plains is sort of like halfway between Austin and the Panhandle, and uh, uh, but I think you know I think he's an interesting precedent and a, and a useful one. I mean, a lot of things you go back and read those stories now. And there's a lot of material that's pretty. <laughs> problematic that I wasn't as clued into, you know, when I was like picked up my first, you know, copy of like Conan stories, like as a middle schooler or whatever. 
but but uh, he does something that I think is really useful, which is when you read those stories, you can just see how you read them from today's perspective, and you can see how he was. Um, they're filled with the characters of real life. I mean, they're filled like especially like the secondary characters and so on. They're all it's all like he's drawing from the real life of this boom town of kind of turn of the century Texas, you know, when uh, at a time when the sort of what we think of the old West, you know, wasn't any more distant to them than like the eighties is to us. Right. And, um, and that thing of, uh, trying to draw from the material of real life, uh, to inform your adventurous or fantastic uh, stories that may, may be kind of adding layers of, uh, of the imaginative to the like material you see in the world around you. Um, I think that's, uh, I don't, yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a worthy undertaking, especially if you can also, uh, try to work hard to, uh, uh, see that world that you're drawing from through the eyes of others and from others who might have a different experience of that world. It's just something that I'm not sure, uh, stories of that vintage did as well as they might have. Yeah, I mean, I, I gather that he didn't like cross planes very much, and that's part of why he wanted to imagine being somewhere else. But uh, I think it would be interesting to to see it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I grew up. I'm a Midwestern kid. I grew up in a pretty, you know, what to my experience was kind of leave it to Beaver reality, and it was both very pleasant and sort of very boring. And I think, um, you know, those kinds of uh, you know pretty pretty. Growing up in sort of boring places is a good, good, <laughs> is a fertile ground for, uh, the science fictional or the fantastic imagination. And, uh, I remember seeing there was this very, uh, I thought at the time, very good, uh, movie adaptation, this movie about uh, Robert E. Howard's life starring Vincent D'Onofrio as Howard and Renee Zellweger, I think in like her first role as like, uh, this teacher that was a good friend of his and maybe Paramore. Um, and it showed that thing of like, you know, this, this, that very mode of imaginative expression where you kind of look at the world around you and you like describe it, but then you layer it over with a kind of imaginative flourish that makes in a way the things more interesting than they are. Kind of the opposite of like a minimalism that sort of strips them down to their bare essence, right? And, uh, uh, I found a lot of sympathy with that. I was like, yeah, that's kind of, I can relate to that. And I think a lot of us do that in our, uh, in our science fiction and fantasy works. And, and, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. I really like that movie. It's called the whole wide world. Yep. Uh, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, we're, we're pretty much out of time. So I think we'll wrap things up there. Do you have any other, um, Chris, any other final thoughts or anything else you want to let people know about? Uh, no, I think, um, I just, uh, like I said, I'd love to see more folks coming down to ArmadilloCon, and uh, I'm delighted to have uh, uh, so many people seeming to enjoy Rule of Capture, and I'm looking forward to uh, uh, being uh, back at it next summer with uh, uh, this new Utopian novel, Failed State. All right, great. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that, and everyone definitely check out Rule of Capture by our guest today, Christopher Brown. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Christopher Brown for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. 
And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.